we can only counter these broad brush negative stereotypes by telling individual stories of human beings, what they've gone through, what they had to overcome just to get here, which shows, you know, what they're made of. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. If you don't live in the U.S., you might have not heard about it for a little while. There were years when that's all we could hear, but things got pretty quiet since a certain president left office. One of the big things that Joe Biden campaigned on was immigration reform. So how much has changed for immigrants in or immigrants to the United States? Today, I'm speaking with someone who has seen the last few decades of U.S. immigration in action. Susan Cohen is one of the country's top immigration lawyers, recognized by more words than I can cite here. She's also consulted with the U.S. government agencies on some of their immigration policy. She is the founding chair of the immigration law practice at the law firm Mintz an author of Journeys from There to Here, in which she talks about a few of her clients and their own path to the United States. And she is, I learned just before interviewing her, a songwriter as well. So the music you're hearing on the podcast today is hers, and aptly, it is immigration-themed. I have to be the strong one now. Thank you for having me. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of skills in one woman. I'm, I'm impressed. Let's start with the news and the politics. Um, so I'm here based in Europe. We hear a lot about immigration, obviously, and refugees at the moment. But I was really curious to um, take a look across the Atlantic as well. We're hard to believe almost two years into the Biden presidency, uh, and he had campaigned on on uh, pretty uh, major immigration reform and overhauling that system. So now, nearly two years into it, is he making good on those promises? Well, the, the answer to that question is, is a complicated answer. I think he's, he's certainly has very good intentions with respect to reforming immigration and making it more humane in the United States and changing a lot of the very restrictive Uh, policies and practices that were put into place by the Trump administration. So he's coming on the heels of an incredibly xenophobic and restrictive immigration program uh, that was carried out relentlessly by the Trump administration. And the Trump administration changed about 400 different policies, regulations, and infrastructure-related issues regarding the the immigration courts, the processing of immigration cases, the lack of discretion that previously had been granted to adjudicators within the agencies inside U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, inside the courts, the immigration judges. So President Biden, I know, uh, did campaign on an immigration reform platform, and I think he really meant it. And he is just facing the reality that it's a really enormous problem to tackle, to try to make all of these changes and reforms to a system where things are so deeply embedded within the agency and within the mindset of some of the officers and people that work within the different agencies inside the Department of Homeland Security. I think his intentions are very good. He has started to make some good changes. For example, 
up until a few days ago, we didn't have any more travel bans relating to COVID. We were all very happy that the travel bans had finally come to come to a stop. And then he, as you I'm sure saw, just instituted a new a new travel ban with respect to this new variant of the virus that impacts a number of countries in Africa, in Southern Africa. I am of the opinion that the travel bans are an inappropriate mechanism to try to contain the, the, the virus inside the United States. I think testing and proof of vaccination should be more than sufficient to make a determination about whether someone could come into the U.S. or not. I think it's partially political tool, um, and it looks good, I think, across the base to the other side of the aisle to institute these travel bans. So that's just one thing that, you know, he he has tried to rescind a number of asylum-related practices that were, you know, really repressive and that, you know, made a mockery of ideas of due process and justice in the immigration context for asylum seekers and those seeking to make a case why they should be allowed into the country. But he continued, he has continued, um, you know, some of the really awful and I would argue unlawful practices that the Trump administration carried out, particularly at the southern border, by utilizing our public health law, which is called Title 42 of the U.S. Code, which they, I believe, really manipulated to use it as a weapon to prevent immigrants crossing into the country from the Mexican border into the United States. And they interpreted it, I think, and, and many courts believe the same incorrectly to, to say that they believe the law gives the U.S. government the right to repel or expel migrants at the southern border. The law doesn't actually say that. Um, it's an interpretation that's a bit of a stretch. So that issue is in the courts. And we could talk for hours about all of the restrictions that the Trump immigration folks put into place. But, you know, one of the most shameful things I think that happened was that for all the people who were fleeing and seeking, in many cases, asylum at the U.S. border, they instituted this Remain in Mexico program, which had never existed before, to prevent people from being admitted into the U.S., even just to make the case or to make the argument about whether or not they had a credible fear of persecution in their home country. And it had never happened before in the history of immigration in the United States that asylum seekers, those who claimed they were, you know, had a, a well-founded fear of persecution, wouldn't even be allowed to explain the facts of their own situation and why at least the government should hear them out and Make a, determination, uh, make a determination about whether they had or didn't have a credible fear uh, or a reasonable fear of persecution. Certainly not just a, a right under immigration law in the United States, but it, under international law, we've signed onto the protocols, you know, um, the UN to respect the obligations of those uh, treaties and, and those agreements that we've entered, entered into that make it black and white clear that if someone is fleeing persecution and, and claims 
a well-founded fear that the person has the right to request asylum, regardless of whether they cross the border legally or not cross the border legally, they have the right to request asylum, whether the government agrees with them or not is a totally different issue, but as a matter of process and justice and fairness, they should have their, their cases heard. But what, under the Trump administration, what they did was they basically, they sent everybody back and wouldn't let anyone in. People were coming up through Central America. Some of them are coming from other countries, Cuba, Haiti, South America, sometimes from Europe. We've had clients from Turkey and other countries make the trip and, and find a way to get to Mexico and then try to come up through the border um, because they couldn't get into the United States any other way and they were fleeing persecution. So for years, people have been waiting on the other side of the border. These are families in many cases with very young children. It's extremely dangerous down there. They don't have any uh, good shelter situations. You know, many of the, the shelters that you know would provide beds filled up very quickly. You know, there are a lot of good shelters that are run by religious organizations and other groups at the near the border towns, but there aren't enough beds for people. And so, you know, many of these families have been just trying to camp out and find a place that's not too un unsafe to spend the night trying to get food. They you know, set, set up a system that required the immigrants themselves to sort of monitor their status about when they would maybe get a hearing in the United States. And so what, what ended up happening was that because people had to move around and still do have to move around so much, they have no security. They have no roof over their heads. They don't have a computer. Um, they're being preyed upon, you know, constantly by, you know, a lot of bad elements that hang out down there. Many times people wouldn't get any kind of email or message from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service or ICE that they might have a, a chance even to cross the border to have a hearing. So a huge percentage of people missed their hearings. And then I think that it was intentional during the Trump years, actually, to um, cause as much discomfort and pain, frankly, to people that they would, you know, discourage them from coming and, and then they missed their, they missed their hearings, <laughs> you know, then they would get actually um, deported in absentia, but they'd never even gotten to the United States, you know, so they had a record against them. So there's a lot of that actually. Um, so Biden inherited all of that. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, <laughs> the kinds of things that he inherited, walked into is a very big problem to try to solve how to manage the Southern border but it could be much more humanely done. And I don't think they should use Title 42 to expel people on public health grounds. They could test them, they could quarantine them, and they could put them up um, and, and have them enter the country and have hearings. And if they don't win, then they, they have to leave. But um, it's, you know, it needs to be done in a much more humane fashion. Mm. So people have suffered down there is atrocious. You know, many people have suffered in ways we can barely imagine. We have um, similar strategies, if you can call them that, here in the UK, where uh, um, there's what they call the hostile environment, which is a strategy they, they stole from counterterrorism, actually, which is to make life so difficult on, right. uh, on migrants, even if they're completely legal and do things by the rules, but to make it so unbearable that people will give up 
and walk away, which, by the way, does not work. It just makes them undocumented. They don't actually walk away because there's nowhere else for them to go to. So um, and, and similarly, you know, not letting people arrive in the country to, to claim asylum as they're entitled to. Unfortunately, it's uh, those strategies are being implemented, I think, um, all over the rich world, it seems. It seems to be a growing, very negative trend, unfortunately. And, you know, the numbers of people in the world that will need protection are going to just keep growing due to so many factors, right, that we know about, like climate change and increasingly repressive regimes and food insecurity, like you said. So we have to figure out a way to, to do it better, don't you think? Yeah. So so within that context, we heard recently it was reported that U.S. authorities had made, uh, I think it's 1.7 million arrests for border crossings in the fiscal year 2021, that it was a, uh, a historical record. So what's happening there? Is it genuinely an increase in the number of people who want to seek refuge in the United States? Is it just those policies that mean we keep arresting the same people over and over again? W- what's happening? There? Um, yeah, some like I think some significant percentage are repeat uh, crossers or attempt tempting crossers. And I don't know what percentage exactly, but I think that also speaks to the issue you just said, which is, you know, the fact that where people came from life became intolerable and they have no other option. So they're going to keep trying. The numbers I think are particularly high um, this this year perhaps because people haven't all gotten the message the Biden administration has tried to send to beg people to try to to make things work in their home countries and then and they're not going to be letting everyone in. I, I think that there was an anticipation when he was running and after he got elected among a lot of the populations that the doors would just open, which of course is not, is not correct, but the messages don't always get through. There are so many institutional problems in many of the countries that the people are, are migrating from that. I think the numbers will continue to be high. Um, They'll probably go up and down like they always do. They might not always be as high as they are now. Certain times of year it goes down based on weather patterns and things, but I don't think it's going to stop. But but it the prior you know administration made it. They kept calling it a, a, a border crisis, a migration crisis. The numbers are not really astronomical, and we could deal with them. It's really messaging that makes it sound much worse than it is, and what the Trump administration did was they just threw everybody in jail. And so, you know, the prisons were filling up, they were building more prisons to hold immigrants who were being detained pending Im- immigration hearings. But what the Trump administration also did, which President Biden wants to counteract, and he has kind of tasked Kamala Harris to do it is, to reinvest in infrastructure building in some of the countries that the people are fleeing from, for example, the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, you know, Guatemala and, and Honduras, so that the country's infrastructure improves to a point where, you know, at least it becomes more tolerable and safer 
to live there. But there's a lot of food insecurity and there's a lot, there's a lot of violence. So see what happens now in Honduras. It looks like the first woman just may, may well be the next per, a woman president in, in Honduras. And she's campaigned on a reform platform. So maybe she'll be able to make some changes in Honduras. But those three countries are really um, mired in corruption and lawlessness. And, mm. you know, there's just no way for, you know, for a large percentage of the population to live uh, without being at risk. Um, and then you also had the Haitians, like, um, you know, a lot of Haitians tried to come into the U.S. a few months ago. It was an anomaly that so many were massing at the border at the same time. Um, but that's another group that, you know, is also not going to stop trying to come because, you know, Life is so difficult right now in Haiti, you know, and a lot of the Haitians that had been seeking to enter the United States came directly from Haiti. But a, a, a lot of them also had who had moved over the last, you know, 10 years or so out of Haiti into South America. Many of them were working in Chile and in Brazil as laborers. Um and they had found a pretty good life in those countries and they were given work permits and things like that. But then when the pandemic hit, a lot of those jobs dried up. A lot of them were in service industry and construction and, and a lot of the, the work just disappeared and they lost their visas. And so a lot of them actually walked all the way north from those countries with their families, many of them with young children and babies. And then that was a certain percentage of the ones that were trying to enter in October were people that had actually been living outside of Haiti for a long period of time. I think the Haitians were also really motivated to come because they had heard that President Biden wanted to reinstitute temporary protected status, which is a special status to protect your, your immigration status for a period of time in the United States when the, there's something happening in your home country that makes it unsafe for you to return there. And you know how these, these chains of information and communication flow. Sometimes it's like playing telephone, right? People don't really get the most important details. They just hear that there's a program for Haitians, but they don't know, they don't know that the program is only for Haitians who are already in the United States when the program mm -hmm. was announced, right? So that also spurs a lot of people to come, but under incorrect, you know, assumptions about whether they would be granted permission to enter or not. So we heard Kamala Harris right, in, in Guatemala saying, do not come, you know, trying to dissuade people to make the trip. And it's certainly laudable to want to improve conditions in the countries of origin. It just feels like it's something we've heard for a while now. And it's a project that is years, decades in the making and, and involves, you know, transforming global capitalism and the slowing cl climate change and I mean it's a lot of big things to to really have an impact on these on these flows of of humanity it's an enormous problem and it seems daunting and and it feels like it's too difficult to solve but we have to try I saw recently a very interesting idea about a new way to think about helping solve that problem which is in a paper I just read on the website of the Migration Policy Institute. The idea was to enlist all of the compatriots who are here in the U.S. who have regularized their immigration status, who are 
um, still sending their remissions, you know, and payments to their families back home in Guatemala or Honduras, the, the remittances are enormous. The amount of money that people who have managed to succeed with the, the valid legal immigration status in the U.S., the amounts that they send back to their families monthly, you know, it is an enormous amount of money. Um, and the idea was that maybe some of them could be, you know, encouraged in some kind of organized fashion to help with the nation building aspect of building infrastructure in those mm. countries. You know, that's a very interesting idea, yeah. I think. Something I've been, I've been um, thinking about a lot, actually, is how we can imagine an immigration system that is... I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but it's cooperative instead of being confrontational and where there are ways to encourage return and to encourage transfer of skills and technology and investment to the global south as well, thanks to you know people who come work for a number of years, maybe in richer countries, but then have a desire to come back, which we know a lot of people do if, if they could, right? Yes. I think it's a, a really smart idea, and I think that it needs to be explored much further. Because people, they, they come and go, you know, and it's interesting. Over the course of my career, I've, I've helped a lot of people that were really desperate to get a green card and, and stay in the United States. And then I've also helped them to move back to their home countries when they decided that it was time, when they wanted to understand what impact it would have on their green card. And then I've been practicing for so long that I've seen them come again a second time back and get a second green card. And I've also been practicing so long that I have seen the patterns of families where I've represented a parent or both parents who have come and made a a career in the United States for some time, but then decided they want to give something back to their home country and they move back. And they're working in all kinds of really important fields, doing really good work and, and have opportunities to contribute back to their home country for a period of time. And then I see their children come. <laughs> you know, they, they trade places. So you see the patterns go, they flow, they flow back and forth. I completely agree that it would be so much better all around to embrace a culture of cooperation and constructiveness in terms of the whole immigration system. We really need to do that, in my opinion, to be more humane, mostly, mm. you know, and to not continue to engage in discrimination and discriminatory practices, which we see happening too often in the United States and I'm sure other places by officers of the various immigration agencies. A place I've seen it the most, or unfortunately I've heard about it the most from my clients is at the borders and the airports where there's a lot of mistreatment of people that goes on and, and there's, you know, the power goes to the heads of the officers and is sometimes abused. I had an anecdote in that book, actually, that just sort of brings it home. One of my partners who was very senior in one of the government agencies in the Bush administration was traveling from Mexico to Texas at the airport. And he had global entry. You know, the, the 
permission that you know yeah. you can apply for that lets you easily come in and out of the United States without much fuss and you don't have to wait in long lines. But he was in line for some reason and he was standing there and the Customs and Border Protection Officer was berating this poor woman standing in front of my partner and treating her so badly, calling her like names and treating her like she was a criminal and she hadn't done anything wrong. And she just maybe didn't speak English so well. And my partner spoke up in front of everybody else. He said to the officer, he said, you know, you are the first representative of the United States that people will ever see when they get off the plane and come into this country. And I really think that it's important that you treat people with respect and appropriately. And there's no reason to be treating this woman the way you're treating her. And he was standing up for the woman and the CBP officer became irate. And he was so upset. He may be a little embarrassed that he took my partner out of line into secondary inspection. He said, you can't talk to me like that. And he went into the computer system while my, my partner was standing there and he canceled his global entry mm. for speaking up on behalf of a fellow traveler, you know, just to ask the officer to show some respect in the way he was treating people and how he talked to people in line. And only, only an American could even speak up that way because I... Um I would be terrified to be sent home. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try however right it is to speak up. And that just is a reflective of this kind of cowboy attitude, right? That officers have oftentimes, not all of them, but, but too many of them, I think. I think they're kind of encouraged within certain of the agencies to be really tough and act roughly towards people when there's really no need for it. It's something that, that's come up several times recently in the podcast is this idea that we keep approaching immigration as a security thing. And it's usually in the hands of a law enforcement agency rather right. than as, you know, economic development, uh, social care, foreign policy, you know, all those other things that are tied in with, with immigration. Um, it's always, always law enforcement first. It's true. And there's no reason that it needed to evolve that way, but it did. And we're stuck with that, you know, but we need to keep working to try to ameliorate some of the harshness. And then a lot of it has to do with the kinds of people that are hired into the agencies and what the standards are, what the requirements are to be hired, who is attracted to those kinds of jobs and had to reformulate that, right? Hmm. Does that reflect, you think, the um, public opinion's uh, view on immigration? I mean, we know that in a political sphere, it's an extremely loaded topic, but do Americans in general feel as divided about immigration as the political sphere is? I don't think so. The polling doesn't indicate that. The, the polling indicates that the majority of Americans support immigrants and immigration reform. And, you know, even to the extent of supporting the immigration provisions such as they are in the Build Back Better bill, 
And like 85 or 90 percent of Americans, for example, are in favor of supporting a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. And in general, the American people, I think, are more inclined towards immigrants than against them. But it's used like as a policy issue is is used and weaponized in very vicious ways by those who are of a restrictionist mindset. And they broadcast messages that spark fear and are based on exaggerated facts or incorrect facts a lot of the time, or they will just take something out of context. You know, President Trump did that all the time when he was campaigning and during his presidency. You know, they would make a policy decision based on a, a case that was an anomaly out of, you know, thousands of cases where maybe there was one bad actor or one criminal that did something. And, you know, just sort of extrapolate from that and to sow fear in hearts and souls of, the, of their base um, about immigrants and to paint a picture of all immigrants as being terrible and takers, not givers, and people who are, are taking benefits that they mischaracterized um, and, and uh, jobs, which they also mischaracterized because, you know, we need immigrants in the United States, many unskilled immigrants as well as skilled immigrants to do a lot of the, the work that our country needs to get done that American workers aren't willing to do or don't have the skills to do. So this really facetious, very negative, really abhorrent immigrant stereotyping and, and fear-mongering. And, but that unfortunately works just for some, for some percent of the people that are, that are paying attention to that. But I think the, the majority of Americans don't feel that way and appreciate immigrants. But I am you know, hoping that through all the kinds of uh, good work that people are doing, including your podcast and uh, the work of many nonprofit organizations, human rights organizations, um, legal services organizations and storytellers that you know people are getting the word out to more and more people to individualize the message because you know stereotypes just paint a false picture and the only way to really understand the benefits of immigrants and their contributions is to look on a you know case by case basis and really show the cumulative effect of all the good people who are doing so many wonderful things, making the country better, adding to the culture, the fabric of our society, instilling really good values in their children, paying their taxes, you know, paying into the system. And that's the majority of immigrants. Is that why you wrote the book? To to open people's eyes to who these people were as as human beings, as individuals? That's exactly why I wrote the book. I was dealing with my clients on an individual one-by-one basis during the Trump years. Things were very, very hard. People were being separated, not able to come into the country. Their cases were put on hold for years, or they were no longer eligible for benefits under our immigration law that they, they absolutely should have been entitled to because the policies that the Trump administration put into place actually 
created quotas for denials and all kinds of things that never existed before. So cases that should have been approved got denied for no good reason. It was basically uh, unlawful and had to be fought in court, which we had to do sometimes to overturn the, the bad decisions that were you know, basically politically motivated decisions. I felt that I wanted to do something more because it, it didn't seem like it was enough, you know, at that point to counter all the anti-immigrant actions that were happening left and right relentlessly day in and day out. And it was a dark time for immigrants and for people who care about them. So, you know, thinking about other things that I could do to try to spread the word. And one of the things I did was I made some music videos uh, based on songs that I wrote, um, one about the Syrian refugee crisis and another one about the massing of, of people coming across from Central America trying to enter the United States based on all the violence that was happening there and the ways that their lives were being put in danger and, you know, numerous assassination attempts or even of children and, you know, just shocking things. So I wanted to try to tell the story in, in music. And then I decided to you know, get involved in, and try to file some really large class action litigations and big litigations to try to stop some of the things that President Trump was doing. And all of those things were, were useful. And I felt like I was making a difference, but, but I, I couldn't sleep at night. And I was thinking, what else can I do? I, I mean, I just felt like I, I needed to do something more than what I was already doing. I really couldn't, couldn't rest. I was too agitated, <laughs> frankly. Didn't get a lot of sleep during the Trump era. Um, <laughs> and, four long uh, years. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I, I was up almost every night. And um, I was worried, you know, and I care so deeply about justice and, you know, due process and, it's so important for me um, that everyone gets a fair shake and that people are not demonized for, for no reason and that their good qualities are allowed to shine, you know, and, and people can see. The whole point of the book, from my perspective, was you can only counter these broad brush negative stereotypes by telling individual stories of human beings, what they've gone through, what they had to overcome just to get here, which shows, you know, what they're made of. The, the, the immigrants that make it to the United States are very, very strong people. They've been through so much. Some of them you wouldn't imagine would have physically survived, you know, some of the things that happened to them, the oppression, the torture, the jailing, for, you know, mostly reasons like standing up for democracy or trying to defend someone who's been falsely accused in another country, standing up for their rights against a corrupt regime. And then they make it here. That in itself is a miracle. And they're able to put the past behind them, which is also, in my view, quite remarkable especially with respect to some of the things my clients and many others I know have suffered because they're so happy to be in this country and they, they want so much to be a part of this democracy and, and to contribute and have a decent life here. Many people come for economic reasons, but many people come because they've 
they just are not safe. And, they, you know, they don't want to leave their country, but they had to leave it. They have no choice. And um, they, they're trying to make the best of it. And so watching that unfold with my clients, going through the legal process with them and watching them, you know, steal themselves for it and live to fight another day to try to win their immigration cases and seeing them put one foot in front of the other and move forward, leaving a lot of trauma behind and building something really empowering in their work, in their communities, with their families and, you know, with their religious communities as well, you know, churches and mosques and, you know, really contributing in so many important ways to the country. It's such a gift actually for me to witness that. And I'm so really impressed and humbled by the resilience, the integrity, the work ethic, and the, and the determination of my clients. And I know my clients are just representative of all the other hundreds of thousands and truthfully millions of immigrants that come to the United States. So I wanted to tell some individual stories so that people could see each person, you know, as a true, fully rounded human being with a heart and a soul so they could embrace them the way I like to do and see how wonderful they are. At the same time, you hinted at it. It's a lot to take on. It's a lot of hard things to engage with on a daily basis. And it's, it's hard work and it's probably a lot of secondary trauma. Are you ever tempted to retire and go uh, take care of your horses and, and <laughs> leave it behind? <laughs> Yeah, I will at some point. I have more music to write. And um, <laughs> I think I'll always spend a good part of my time trying to broadcast about the benefits of immigrants to our country and to other countries and to try to just sort of extend the light into our shared common humanity and try to really touch people in a way that they might see something differently for the first time. And, you know, when they look at, when they find out that someone is an immigrant or when they hear about an immigrant, that they might want to do more and reach out a hand in friendship or to help with someone who needs to get a job or, you know, be introduced to other people to get a leg up and then maybe just have more of a chain of human interaction and understanding. That's the, you know, that's really important to me. I mean, I'm a hard driving lawyer, but at heart, I'm really just, a, I'm, a, I'm a humanist. I, you know, I believe in, in building common humanity um, and trying to bring people together rather than tear us apart. Well, thank you so much for uh, for choosing this podcast as, as one place to uh, to build that chain. I really appreciate it. That was a great conversation, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. That was Susan J. Cohen, who joined us from Boston, Massachusetts this week. Apologies if there were any issues with the sound quality. We did this one over Zoom. Her book is Journeys from There to Here, Stories of Immigrant Trials, Triumphs, and Contributions. Try saying that fast. It is published by River Grove Books in the U.S., and there'll be a link in the show notes. 
I'm leaving you with her song Beyond the Borders, which is performed by students and alumni of the Berklee College of Music in Boston, including the first Syrian woman to be accepted into this prestigious school. A welcome and big thank you this week to three new members, Pedro Tellis, Zach Honig, and Anne Solomon. This is the last episode of the season before going away for a little Christmas break and recharge, as well as preparing the next season of Borderline that you'll hear in the new year, as well as other projects. Thank you so much for listening. I will be resharing every week some of the earlier episodes of Borderline that you may have missed if you're a newcomer to the podcast. So look out for that in your podcast feed. Make sure that you follow the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your platform of choice is. And you can find all those links at borderlinepod.com where you can also become a member to support the program. I would really appreciate it. It will help us start 2022 with a bang and bring you a lot more of these deep conversations about not just immigration, but what it is like to live beyond borders, thinking about big issues with a broader view and perspective than a single nation state. That's what I'm trying to do here. My corny tagline that I think I'm going to make a thing is small media for big ideas. Thank you so much for listening throughout 2021. Couldn't do it without your support and your patient ears paying attention to my ramblings. I'm your host, Isabel Hogal. Music was by Susan Cohen this week. Borderline is a One Lane Bridge production, and I will see you in 2022. Happy holidays to all of you. We sold her bridal dress Now her dreams they lie in tatters And our joys ripped to be a builder and the wood obeyed my hands for my family I always did provide now there is no work for building in this unfamiliar land my hands once quick and clever they may as well be Sit around your fire 
you bear your souls, your pain. You touch me with your love, your dignity. And I'm struck by just how easily I can go home again. I take your stories with me now. A witness I will be.